This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is January Littlejohn, who is the mother of several teens and an activist trying to wrest parental rights from the hands of the state. In this conversation, we talk about her daughter's school attempting to transition her daughter without her knowing, and the process of her January that is discovering this, and then holding those professionals to account. What is going on in United States education is rather alarming, but parents and citizens are not without power to change the system for the benefit of all. And January is one of those who are at the front line of ensuring child protection and parental rights. And if you would like more information or to support her, links to her work are down there in the description. Without further ado, here is January Littlejohn. How was your week, Ben? It's been good, really busy, but good. Oh, really? Are you uh, what, kicking ass and taking names? And you're all out of names or something like that? Well, you have to remember, I have three teenagers. So, like, even without. Don't they this, just run themselves? Life is... <laughs> no. No? I have two learning to drive and no solo drivers yet. So, I am a full time <laughs> Uber driver. Oh, nice. I hope they tip well. No, they no. actually just leave things around, laundry, food. Yeah. Three teens. Are you looking at the finish line or with longing or with like, oh, I don't want to. Oh, worry. no. After everything we've been through, I am just cherishing every moment and just, you know, grateful for where we are. And But the teen years, it's, it's no joke. It is. It's a different um kind of emotional experience than having toddlers or any other phase. Yeah. I was talking to one guy um, this weekend and he said that uh, the interesting thing about being a parent is that once you finally figure out where your kid is, like on a developmental map, they, they move places and then you have to readjust constantly. (laughs) Yes, that is so true. Yes. But, but when you have multiple, like you hope by the youngest one, You've kind of figured some stuff out. So the first two may be messed up a little bit, but by the third one, like, you know, that one should be good. Well, yeah, but the problem is you don't, you don't give a crap anymore by the time (laughs) you get to the third one or maybe fourth or fifth. You still care. You've just, you know, you've relaxed about a lot of stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But the older ones are there to remind you that's not fair. You know, you didn't do that with us. And we're like, well, we made mistakes. So do you remember, um, do it going through the same process with your parents and your siblings? 
No, I had a very, very different upbringing than my kids are experiencing. My parents were divorced from the time I was in second grade. So I had a single mom that was a nurse. So she was on call a lot. Um, so I didn't, I didn't have the same kind of experience, which I think is why it was so important for me to be a stay-at-home mom and to be present and to be at the soccer games and the performances and those types of things. So you were one of those latchkey kids from that the that we watched shows about. Oh yeah, I was an after-school special. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. I think when you when you grow up in an environment that there's no guardrails, you know why it's so important to have them. Okay. So you had to figure out a lot of these things on your own. Sure. I mean, I love my mom, and she did the best that she could. But she was she was a friend mom. She wasn't um, huh. someone that was going to tell me no or set very clear, firm boundaries and those types of things. She's an amazing grandmother. Oh, yeah. That kind of personality serves itself well when you're yeah. in the grandmother role. Yeah. What was but your, not so much in the mom. What was your college like? What did you end up studying or not studying and experiencing? So I went to Florida State. And at the time we were living in West Palm and I had a scholarship. So I was very blessed to have um, a scholarship to go to school, but I had to stay in state and I'm originally from Memphis. And so when we moved to West Palm, it was a little bit of a culture shock. So I went as far North as I could because Tallahassee, I don't know if you've ever visited, but it's much more like Georgia than Florida. It's, much more Southern. You still have the hills and the oak trees and the Spanish moss. So it's a very different uh, Florida experience and environment than South Florida, say with the beaches and the palm trees and okay. kind of what everyone thinks of when they think of Florida. Why was it a culture shock though? Was it, was it, it wasn't just the terrain and the lack no, or addition of bikinis, very, right? very, <laughs> no, it was just very, very different. Um, just a very different environment hmm. being going from the south to south florida it was just a very different i had a very heavy southern accent that was not well received oh that's a class marker yeah because a yeah, lot of not well people in south florida the, are from the from the northern states right correct yeah yes so a lot of people from new york i mean they have what they call snowbirds that spend um just a small portion of the year to get away from the cold so that's, you know, you hear about that, but that's real. Like from, I think it's Thanksgiving to Easter is when we have a lot of traffic and you have all the snowbirds come down and yeah. it's kind of a different experience living down there. What did you end up doing for work and for study during that period? So I majored in psychology and then I went on to get my master's degree in mental health counseling and my specialist degree in education. Okay. And how did you afford all that schooling? Were you like serving tables or? Oh, yeah. I, there were times that I worked two jobs. Um, Florida State also has a circus. So Wait, I was what? also in that. Florida State has a circus. It's like one of the only two colleges in the United States that has a collegiate circus. Okay. What did so you do in also, the circus? So I did. They're a lot better now than than they were when I was in. So let me just be clear about that. I probably 
could not have made it with the, the certain standard that they have now and the caliber of athleticism. But I did aerial acts and ground acts and sky pole was my favorite. I loved quartet. Wow. You're just up there flying trapeze. I did do swing trap. It's not the one that you think of where you're going from bar to bar. Um, but I did do an aerial act where I was on the trapeze. Well, you know what? It's better than pole dancing for your college. Uh, <laughs> college there was but... no pole dancing. <laughs> yeah, no, right? sky okay. pole was not pole dancing. I was flipping on the pole. Oh, wow. Um, and the pole was horizontal, not vertical. So that was good. Any dangerous moments? Did you did you fall? Or... Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. I hit my head. Oh, had no. a concussion. Yeah. Lots of... Um, Anytime you talk to someone that's had any kind of experience in those kind of like aerial acrobatics, you're going to have injuries, whether yeah. it's rope burn or falling in the net, you know, not properly. You can hyperextend your back and those kinds of things. Hmm. So I don't want to, I, I like like going through and just like learning who you are and like mapping it for the audience. But the, the arc is um, like this mental health plus education, plus psychology, and then being a mom of a, how would you describe, or to what extent should we describe your experience as a mother with regard to the issue of? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I was, I, I think I was put in this place for a very specific reason, especially with my background. So after college, you have a period of time where you're working toward your licensure. And typically, the only places that will hire a non-licensed therapist, it's either going to be severe psychiatric type work, like yeah. in the hospital where you're bigger acting people working on that kind of um, psychiatric floor, or substance abuse. And so I have a family history of substance abuse. My father was an alcoholic, and he passed away when I was still in graduate school. And so that was a pretty big loss that I had sustained. Um, and for those reasons, I wanted to help others, especially adolescents. So that was my population specialty was adolescents. And then from the substance abuse, I went on to a small private college campus where I counseled students for all kinds of issues that they were having, like a normal counseling center that a college would provide but I also helped to start an ADHD coaching program. Mm -hmm. And so I really loved learning about brain-based learning and how the brain works, what would help with focus and attention. Because, you know, when you really start to learn about how the brain operates, especially in the classroom, you realize that all kinds of learners benefit from teaching in a multimodality fashion, not just kids with ADHD or learning disabilities. Yeah. And multimodality, and so that, could, could you just uh, explain that? So it's like experiential learning um, type situations where you're not just doing a standard lecture, like you're incorporating what you know about the brain. So the hippocampus fills up after about 20 minutes of straight lecture. It just and so like, when you think, yeah, just kind of fills up. And so that's why it's hard to sustain focus in a lecture that's like an hour and a half long. Yeah. I like wonder what people takes... do with podcasts then at the 20 minute mark. 
they're hyper- well, unlike in a classroom, like the way that I do podcasts, especially is I'm doing other things. I'm moving I'm listening. I'm okay. not sitting yeah. at a computer. You know what I'm saying? And so, and that's, that's experiential. Like even if you're giving a small break as a teacher in between lecturing, and it could be as simple as, okay, we're going to get up and stretch for a minute. I'm going to lead you through some stretches or, okay, it's time for everybody to come get your worksheet. So instead of passing the worksheets out, you have the kids get up and come to the desk to grab them. It's, I mean, it, the break doesn't have to be long. Okay. It just helps to incorporate movement into yeah. lessons to break so, them up. Yeah, yeah to pop, pop, the, pop the kid, well, pop the individual, because I'm sure this happens to adults too, out of like this one just way of concentrating and then... That's right. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, even the way that I teach my kids to study, because kids aren't being taught to study anymore. It's like really interesting to me. Um, They just expect them to kind of intuitively know how. But a lot of people don't realize is when you're studying, if you say the information out loud, that is stored in a different part of your brain than if you're just reading. And so it's important for students of any age to understand how they learn best so that then they can apply those specific study skills to their learning. So that's really, I mean, I loved what I was doing. I really loved um, helping college students, especially, I mean, a lot of these kids were at risk. I've always done really well with at-risk population. Okay. And so I worked with kids on academic probation. And as, I, as you can imagine, that's going to run the gamut. Some of them are very bright, but they're partying too much. They're missing classes. Yeah. And it snowballs. And some are genuinely struggling because they're away from their parents who really kind of helped yeah. keep them focused and on target. So there's lots of reasons why kids aren't successful their first year of college. And so I really enjoyed that aspect is helping them along, helping them to discover their own potential and ways to be successful on their own. Hmm. When about was this? Like what decade? So not that you've had that many decades <laughs> under your belt, but I just because I yeah, well, I'm, things have I, changed I a am, lot in the last 10, 15 years. They have, especially in my field. So I graduated from graduate school in 2001. OK. And then I did the substance abuse for a couple of years. Um, and then I worked at a small private university down in Boca Raton, Florida, until mm-hmm. about 2007 when my daughter was born. And then I made the decision to step away. What was that calculation like for you, uh, going full-time mama? Like, what did you have to give up? Like, what did your ego want and, you know, your heart want? Like, how did you think through that? I didn't really feel like I was giving up anything because I knew that I could go back at any time. Um, And I, from the moment I saw my daughter, I mean, I was just in love with her. I just, I loved watching her sleep, loved being with her, loved that whole bonding period of time where you're just getting to know how to take care of a baby. Because I had grown up babysitting and doing jobs like that. Yeah. But it's completely different when that baby is completely dependent upon you all the time with no breaks. And so it was an adjustment because I definitely felt like my husband got the brunt of that because he would come home from work and I had literally no adult interaction all day. So like I was ready to go and he was ready just to, you know, chill, <laughs> yeah, yeah. spend some time with the baby. And I was like, talking his ear off. 
Yeah. Um, but that, you know, but then I found my stride, I, especially once the kids were school age. I mean, we did some enriching activities. I was all the time taking them to the park, reading with them. It wasn't like I was putting them in front of a TV. Like I really, I wanted to be the best mom that I could. So we were working on phonics and I was teaching them how to read and things before they even got to preschool. So we were doing, you know, art class and music class and just things to get us out of the house. And yeah, I really enjoyed that time. Yeah. You know, um, when we, it seems like we're, we're kind of just over critical when we talk about parenthood, you know, like, Oh, there's like, it seems like there's like, where's the balance between like an absent parent latchkey kid relationship and a hover mom drone mom, like total, uh, total kid that can't even be away from their parent forever. And like, there's gotta be a lot of wiggle room and, and probably for most of human history, you just like, you just grew up. Um, but we're really concerned with providing the best childhood possible. And then if we don't, we still get, uh, you know, we blame our parents for everything, you know, or the parents expect that they'll be blamed for everything. So I wonder how, how did you land on the right balance for you? And you're a mom still with kids in the house still. So I'm sure you're still always adjusting. Well, I think that it's also good to have a parent that co-parents with you that mm-hmm. maybe doesn't share the exact same parenting style. So, you know, they did get the, the rough and and tumble play with my husband. And sometimes that ended up with injury. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I try not to be too overprotective. And the times that I was, it was usually based in fear of my child getting hurt, which I think is a normal response. But then I had my husband to balance that out to make sure that they were able to take risk, healthy risk, mm-hmm. in an environment where the stakes aren't too high. And I think that, you know, with my upbringing and my husband was a latchkey kid as well. And so we both wanted something different from our, for our children, but also knowing that they do need to make mistakes, that they do need to fall down because if they, if they never experienced discomfort and they don't learn how to cope with that, the moment they are separated from parents and they experience that on their own and they don't have those skills, that can be pretty catastrophic. Mm-hmm. And I did see that happen when I was at the university setting. It was yeah. very clear to me, the kids whose parents were waking them up, getting, you know, they, they literally had no life skills. Some of these kids had no idea how to do laundry. They didn't know how to anticipate how long it took for them to get ready yeah. in order to walk to class to get there on time. I mean, it was very basic life skills that these kids did not have that I was huh. then helping with. Yeah. To get them to be successful in their classes. Yeah. Uh, what were the strategies to actually convince a 20-year-old to shape up? Well, Fs can be pretty convincing. Okay. <laughs> you yeah, know, like the kids who are on academic probation, it's, it's a reality. You're on academic probation. If you don't bring up your GPA, you will be expelled from the school. Yeah. So it was pretty, um, I think consequences are important for children. Yeah, so there's the reality check that was imposed on them, and then you help them. The reality check's already there. So then you help, like, well, do you want to overcome this or not? And if you don't, then bye-bye. If you do, then I can help you. So it's up to them. That's right. Okay. I think all kids, even young adults, I mean, there's not much difference between maturity when you have a 16, 17-year-old or an 18, 19. It's not a huge emotional gap. 
And so I think choices are really important, at least giving the sense that they're in control of the choices they're making. And it's always important for them to realize every action has a consequence. And sometimes the consequence is good and sometimes it's bad. And that's just, you know, that's part of what I see as good parenting too. Like making sure kids know that every action has a consequence. Yeah. Speaking of consequences, um, we met at uh, this GenSpec conference Mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago now, and uh, you gave a presentation and earlier in this conversation, you said, you've been put here for a reason or you're you're the, you're the woman for the job woman for the moment. Could you describe the moment or what's needed right now and how you're, how you got into this work? Sure. And I don't think I'm the only woman at all. And I'm incredibly grateful to the parents that have come before me that were really feeling around in the dark for a very long time because people either weren't listening to them yeah. or they were being silenced. Yeah. And so. Or abused in some, some way. Um, just sure. That they're absolutely. bigots for not accepting mm-hmm. uh, this newfangled identity. Yeah. That has and, consequences. And really, like this identity really is not it. just, yeah. That's yeah, the one I mean, thing truly, about the. Go ahead. No, oh, I'm sorry. Just about the gender thing, just to tie up the, with the consequences. This isn't just a kid playing around with their identity because there's a lot of different downstream consequences. Not that punk didn't have consequences or, you know, like goth doesn't have some sort of consequences, but this particular choice in a child's life to start to play around with their relationship to their sex because of how things are set up right now, does have lifelong consequences or potentially does. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and you know, having an identity crisis in adolescence, this is nothing new. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, this is when we want them to struggle and to figure out who they are when they're still at home and there, there are hopefully guardrails to help them and prevent them from making any kind of catastrophic decisions that will have lifelong negative implications. And I have said this before, and I'll say it again, if this were just an identity where people were trying things on like clothing, like self-expression, without the medicalization component, I wouldn't be here talking about this because those types of things tend to work themselves out. It's the medicalization piece. When I learned about the path that my daughter had been set on and that you pull back the curtain from what gender affirming care is, this was not even something I was trained in in the hmm. late 2000s in my graduate program. Yeah. You know, I mentioned in my GenSpec presentation, we were not taught about non-binary identities, gender fluidity. That was non-existent. And my, the, the population that I worked with was this population that is experiencing this high rate of trans identification. So the fact that I was on a college campus, I was in the high schools, and I did not have one client struggling with any kind of sex confusion, that just shows you how quickly and how far this has gotten. You know, we weren't even trained in my graduate program. Of course, we were trained in diversity and inclusion and things of that nature, but nothing to do with 
transgenderism, uh, gender, even gender identity disorder, which was what it was called when I was training. It was so rare that, you know, we would touch on it in kind of abnormal psych classes and things of that nature. But we never really went into any of the pathology of it or anything because it was just that rare. People could go their whole careers and never experience that at all. And typically, if they did, they would refer out to a specialist yeah. who had, you know, more knowledge about that issue. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah but for my daughter, that. yeah, for well, and that's, I think that's actually been a disservice to these individuals. Because as you know, now the psychological and the medical associations have been completely hijacked by ideology over science. And when you go from, you know, a very ethical pathway that they were doing under Dr. Zucker mm -hmm. with the watchful waiting and the proper assessment, like Dr. Stephen Levine talks about, you're doing the differential diagnosis, you're making sure there's a proper informed consent model taking place. And you're not encouraging any of these kind of medical radical interventions on children. I mean, that's really the ethical pathway that was being followed up until activism took over. And then, of course, you saw what they did to Dr. Zucker, accusing him of all kinds of horrible things mm -hmm. um, and then shutting down his clinic. Yeah. And I think that's when it really started to take a left turn toward a really dangerous, dark path. Well, yeah, with lots of consequences for lots and lots of individuals. I mean, we don't know the numbers yet. Wilfred Riley um, kind of glossed some numbers at the end of Genspect mm -hmm. about the detransition time bomb. And those numbers, even those numbers are, are kind of odd because like just saying that there's 50,000 people on the detrans subreddit doesn't really mean anything because Reddit is just a bunch of bots anyways. But um, we know that the regret rate is not 1%. And we know that that um, that the choices that these children are being offered, I guess, uh, un under specious circumstances too, like they're not really offered uh, other types of care because other types of care is even labeled conversion therapy and unethical, which is so strange. Um, but the consequences uh, are not reversible, and we know that a lot of people will want them reversed because of how flimsy this idea is. Even to begin with well of course and you know if you look at all this time that i was doing the research i was listening to a lot of what stella and sasha ayad talk about and they talk about the arc the timeline and many of these individuals there's a reason why it's usually five to seven years after the trans identity starts that they start to come out of this and if you know anything about brain development you know that's right around the time period that the frontal lobe is developing. And so when you start developing those critical thinking skills and the, you know, the maturation sets in of understanding consequences and being able to weigh these things, it, you know, it's just so insane to me that people that do understand or should understand brain development somehow thought this was an ethical idea to allow a child to make these types of choices. And, you know, the activists will say, well, it's really the parent making the choice. Well, that's not necessarily true because it's all based on the child's self-ID. Yeah. And if you listen to a lot of these gender specialists, these doctors, 
they will say you have to follow the child's lead. Where else do we do this in medicine? We don't. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Wow. I mean, with the opioid crisis, we followed the patient's lead, right? Or opioid. Um, we gave them that, that scale of well, like happy to sad. So, I mean, that's one way. Um, but that was also a giant medical scandal, just yeah. like this is. Um, this wasn't... And that wasn't with children either. I mean, to my knowledge, they weren't loading children up on opioids because they said that they were in pain. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, maybe maybe ice cream? Kids get ice cream whenever they want, right? Like, that's where we follow yeah. children. No. Okay. No. <laughs> uh, nothing comes to mind. I but... mean, mine don't. <laughs> <laughs> so how did, how did it touch you personally and how, um, how prepared were you? And what was your I was first completely reaction? completely unprepared. Okay. Yeah, I, I was, we were blindsided by this. This was the height of COVID. And I started seeing some red flags. Our daughter was 13. And she had a friend group where initially we were really excited because my daughter has ADHD and she's gifted. And so oftentimes that can read like autism markers. Yeah. What is that like generally? speaking. So some, some specialists with ADHD even consider ADHD on the spectrum Okay. because many of the kids that have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, they struggle in social situations, just like someone on the autism spectrum would. And how they struggle. So they struggle with reading cues. They don't know if something's funny or not funny. They don't know how to read the audience reaction. So if they're standing there and people like you or I may pick up on, you know, cues, people are turning away. They're starting to look around. They look uncomfortable. Someone that's on the spectrum or even some kids with ADHD, they don't pick up on those cues. So they keep going. And so a lot of their behavior can be very off-putting, especially if they're impulsive. They may be talking too loud. They may not be making eye contact. They may be talking over someone and not realizing it's, you know, with my daughter, especially there wasn't a lot of back and forth discussion. Yeah. It was very like one sided. And so people had a hard time bonding with her, especially with her perseveration, which also happens a lot with autism. So she, you know, you hear sometimes where young boys with autism They may only want to play with dinosaurs, only talk about dinosaurs. They learn all they can about dinosaurs. And like their parents are like, I'm so tired of dinosaurs. Or um, some young kids, it's about the wheels with cars or trucks. They're obsessed with the way the wheels turn. So they tend to find something and then perseverate on that issue. And my daughter absolutely had that as a part of her personality naturally. Like w- w- so anything for- fun that you you're willing to share that she perseverated? Over? Oh gosh, it was anything. Um, so at first it was book series, 
even as a young toddler, she would want me to read the same yeah, book yeah. over and over. And that's not uncommon. So I don't mean like any toddler that does that. I mean, that was her favorite book. You know, she she would uh, want to read it over and over, even in the same night, again, again, again. Yeah. Um, but then that started to go into like other book series. There was a Wings of Fire dragon book series. And everything was always very... Um, kind of out there, very mystical, like very fantasy-like. She enjoyed anything in that realm. And my husband did too. So they, you know, they had that connection. Um, He was, he was a gamer at one point. He did the whole Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. So he would play that with the kids. And I had never played, but there's, there's aspects to it that are very good. You know, it's very enriching in terms Mm -hmm. of imagination and you use dice and so there's a lot of math involved and strategy it's a it's a really interesting game once you get to know it where you're creating characters um avatars on certain types of games it lends itself into this gender issue as well but that so it started with this friend group and they actually initially identified as furries i don't know if you've heard that oh word before which furry there's a lot right there's like a rainbow of fruit furries yeah well this was very like for my daughter at least it was very innocent it was clear later on as i got to know these kids more some of them had been exposed to the porn aspects of the furry culture for my daughter that was not her case so what it looked like for them was they mm-hmm. wanted to wear cat headbands and, and fur tails and things like that to school. Why yeah. the school allowed this, I have no idea. Because to me, that's no different than a costume or something else. And so, you know, as I was navigating okay. this, I thought this feels weird to me, but I'm just happy she has friends kind of thing. I didn't know yeah. anything about furries or any of that kind of subculture. Um, and then they started identifying as bisexual. Um, some of the friends were becoming non-binary, gender fluid, and then COVID hit. Okay. So it was like it all just kind a, of snowballed really fast. Down just a bit. And then so COVID just kind of blew it all. Might it have been the case if this young female, your daughter, who um, has a hard time connecting with people uh, just because of who she is and she's developing and gifted and uh, ADHD ish. Um, There's something about the costume. There's something about this code of relationship, this identity based friend group where there's something that allows her to share something else with her. Bonding can happen like this natural bonding that, that she's thirsting for. Uh, this connection, something about that furriness and then all this stuff with the non-binary identities, all that stuff that allows, how do you think that that was developmentally appropriate in a way before it became like weird and off the charts, but there's some, some sort of adaptive element to that. Do you, do you have any ideas or insights into why that would be so attractive to her and how that helped her facilitate, um, becoming close to other people? I think that a commonality of all adolescents and children is the desire to fit in and 
to feel like they found their tribe, to be accepted. And so I don't necessarily think that the furry identity was anything other than my daughter loves animals and she maybe liked the texture of the tail. Um, but I don't know that that helped or harmed in any way. I genuinely feel like she was searching for a place of belonging. And she finally found this group of friends who seemed to accept her with all her quirks. They weren't as obvious yeah. as she felt like they were when she was around other kind of more mainstream kids. They weren't, you yeah. know, she would want to play make-believe and okay. play dragons, and they just weren't into those same type of things, but these friends were. And so I think for my daughter, it was genuinely just really wanting to fit in and belong. You know, there's another aspect of safeguarding, I guess you could say, really or uh, a, a lack of adult or malfeasance on the part of adults, because you would think that professionals, especially in the education system, would understand the proclivities of the weird odd set to co-ruminate and to really go off in these really crazy directions. And then to feed them this gender stuff that how would you not see that feeding them this escape route from reality would not like just go crazy, uh, just like be what wildfire, well, sorry, wildfire for the imaginations of this weird, uh, that weird odd set. It seems like. Yeah. I mean, so when I did a deep dive into this, because for your audience, I don't know how much backstory you're going to give them, but when my daughter, when they did the gender support plan with okay. her, yeah. without us let's let's back knowing. up just a little bit um That's this gender when, support plan is a document that many schools have uh okay. and what is this gender support plan if i didn't know any better like this is it's it just sounds kind of creepy to me a gender support plan that's being given like like some sort of aptitude test like like the secret SAT where like they fill out this form and then they they tell yeah. you what your identity is, right? Well, it it is actually very creepy, and the creepiest part is they're doing these support plans without parent notification or consent. And so, let me just back up for a minute. So when when the kids in my daughter's friend group started identifying as transgender. I was just struggling to keep up. One girl was actually a twin and she started identifying as a male. Then another girl whose mm. mother was actually transitioning to become a male. She started identifying as gender fluid. And then another child said that he was non-binary. And so this was all kind of transpiring so quickly. And then COVID happened. They shut down the schools in March of 2020. And it was May of 2020 that our daughter came to us and said, I no longer feel like a girl. And so that's kind of what propelled okay. us into okay. this gender world with our own daughter, who was 13 at the time. And for us, and I think for a lot of parents, because now I have spoken to a ton of parents that are in the same situation as we were, it escalates very quickly. And so, you know, it goes from, I no longer feel like a girl. And then you try to kind of talk to your child to understand what's happening, where they're coming from, how long has this been going on? You know, just trying to, to 
figure this out. And then it typically starts with wanting to be called a different pronoun, wanting to be called a different name. For my daughter, she was already wearing pretty gender neutral clothing, like some D&D shirts, um, you know, science shirts. She was really into science. She had gone to like several science camps. So a lot of her her clothing was just like T-shirts and shorts. It wasn't overly feminine, but there was a complete rejection of her wardrobe, any jewelry she had, even jewelry that was special that my mother had given her, any rejection of anything pink, which is so silly. Like it's very gender stereotype, you know, rejections. She wanted, she talked about wanting a binder. So that was really quick. That was that summer. Because as we were navigating this, we were still, even though a lot of things were shut down at the height of COVID, we started realizing staying home is not helping. We need to get out. So we started traveling as much as we could. Hmm. And it was actually pretty nice because not a lot of people were traveling in the summer of 2020. So we kind of had our, um, you know, our pick of where we wanted to go and, and what hotels we wanted to stay at and other than having you know to wear the mask and follow those kind of social distancing guidelines a lot of places were grateful to have the business and so we started traveling but you know that brought up other issues about bathing suits and rejecting her body like it just and a lot of the things that i was seeing oh yeah really was mirroring girls that i used to counsel with eating disorders it was a lot of the self, you know, the self-hatred, the body shaming, um, some of the things that she started Wait, researching, alone? like showering with the light off, covering up. Okay. Yeah, part, like something to help okay. with the, the dysphoria she read was yeah. to turn the light off when you shower so you're not having to see yourself covering up a mirror. So it, it's really about yeah. disassociating from the parts of your body that you are uncomfortable with and you dislike. And in, unlike previous decades, you know, my generation, we were taught that's normal. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Everybody's uncomfortable during puberty. Instead, these girls are getting the message, uh, well, if you're huh. uncomfortable with your body during puberty, it's probably um, because you're transgender. Yeah, so... um yeah, I understand that this is just teenagers kind of being teenagers, and these this is just a crazy set of ideas. Um, but but pl- yeah, plus you add in that it's not it's not just about identifying as the opposite sex either. You're giving these very impressionable children who are already searching for an identity seventy two yeah. gender identities to choose from, all with yeah. different color combinations of flags. And so you've got merchandise even. And for my daughter, who's an artist that loves colorful things, that was also very enticing. Like, which flag do I get to pick today? Which pronouns represent my personality? And this is really how it's sold to these kids. Yeah, you you pick your pronouns. From what you described, this is... uh, And it's just a matter of how you feel Discomfort with her body wasn't necessarily from being perceived as feminine uh, or getting unwanted or unwarranted uh, male attention. 
due to her the her femininity coming online it was kind of she she's kind of it's this is happening in kind of inside of herself in in relationship to herself and then yes. there's the friend group where everybody else is kind of playing around with this at the same time her not wanting to be sexualized there was a boy in the friend group who had absolutely been viewing pornographic material and he started making porn okay. pornographic images pornographic like images oh. that look like her and he was sending them to her through her phone and we were we thought we were being smart as parents by having the monitoring app you know she wasn't allowed on social media of any kind but it didn't matter because all of these kids in her friend group they had their phones all night they had unrestricted <laughs> access so she was being sent this transgender propaganda of you know hating cis people and if your parents don't immediately affirm them they're not your real family like all of these kind of yeah. memes and TikTok videos that we would have never allowed her to look at i mean i didn't even know this type of propaganda existed until i started seeing it come through on her mm -hmm. phone like she you know we have we still charge all of our children's phones in our room so they don't have them at night i think that's a very dangerous thing for parents to let a child have you know a cell phone in their room at night that's just when all kinds of really bad things can happen but but that that was part of what she was uncomfortable with but we did not know all of that and it really you know it took her a long time to really develop the self-awareness um, why and what as direction to why, why all inside of, of herself happening. or why around her well both you know she because she was so emotionally immature at 13 emotionally she was only around 11. so until her frontal lobe really started developing just even within the last year she didn't have the self-awareness mm -hmm. to know okay why she was feeling what she was feeling and to put words. So you described uh, her friend group herself. She just didn't and have that. Then the internet culture, the propaganda side, and then the school comes along and does what? So we were really struggling to get through the summer. We talked to several counselors and it was clear to me that I needed to be careful because the first counselor I spoke to, I asked, I said, so, my child is struggling. She seems confused about whether or not she's a girl. Like, what is your treatment approach to this type of issue? Have you encountered this? Because my first step right. was to tell the pediatrician. And of course, this was all done online. We weren't even allowed in the pediatrician's doctor's office. Um, so she's the one that referred me to this quote unquote specialist. Well, the specialist said, well, because of COVID, I'm not running my group therapy sessions. And I was like, back up. You've got a whole group of these kids. Like I knew from counseling girls with anorexia. Why? That's the last thing you want to do is hold a group of girls with eating really? disorders. Because it, it becomes and very competitive. And how long have you known that? Or how long has professionals known that? That 100%. girls with a um, maladaptive... Uh, self-harm De complex decades. will compete with each other at who is the most, I guess, what, oppressed or um, 
the, the most devoted to the cause? Correct. Yes, I mean, and that's also part of the reason why girls lend themselves so well to social contagions. Yeah. It's because of the way they socialize. But that was a red flag for me. So I did not have any further communication with that therapist. I said, you know, thank you. I, we're going to look in a different direction. And so we finally found a counselor that said, you know, I'm starting I'm starting to see this. I don't know what it is, but I, I think we should just focus on the other issues your daughter is having. And let's let's not okay. pay attention to this for now. And that seemed very reasonable to me because at the at the same time this like i said it was escalating she was very cavalierly talking about binders wow. and well, what if i need puberty blockers wow yeah i had never even heard of puberty blockers and so then i'm researching puberty but i'm like how does she know about puberty blockers and so and, yeah. and the way that she was asking i said well sweetheart do you know anything about puberty blockers do you know what they do oh it's just you know if i just want to stop puberty to give me time to think about this. She was parroting things that she was either learning online because you and I both know when you Google this issue, the only resources that come up are affirmation and how dangerous it is to not affirm and how this can really hurt the individual. And then of mm. course they bring up suicide and all kinds of other narratives that they're pushing. And so it started escalating. She was getting more and more agitated about us using her given name and not using the name that she wanted. And by this point, school was about to start. And so I felt like I was really up against a clock. And I Why? Felt, because what, what what would school do? Would, would that be a good well, thing for her? Get like her out? Needed, well, yes, I was. So we were given the option. A lot of states were not given the option of in-person learning. Yeah. So we were lucky that we were in Florida and we were given the in-person learning. A lot of, about half the kids in our county stayed online and we made the decision to send our kids to school. So I was hoping that that would help to get her back into her routine, to have some structure. But, but what I was worried about is this name issue. And so I reached out to a teacher at the school thinking like I had done previously, you know, when I've had lots of issues with my kids over the years, I want to give you a heads up. We're not affirming at home. We have found a counselor, but we just started with the counselor and that I feel like this new identity is directly related to her friend group. There's specifics that I can't go into about that email communication because we're still in litigation with the school district. But what I will tell you is from that email correspondence, a couple of weeks went by, my daughter got into the car and said, mom, I had a meeting today about my name and they asked me which restroom I wanted to use. Okay. Well, at the time she was identifying as non-binary. So, I'd never seen a non-binary restroom. I was confused why she would be asking about a restroom with wanting to go by a nickname, which is what I thought it would be treated as. Yeah. Clearly hindsight, I was very naive. So I immediately emailed the guidance counselor because we, again, were not allowed on school campus. 
And I said, my daughter just said she had a meeting. I don't understand why I wasn't invited to this meeting. I have safety concerns that you asked her which restroom she wanted to use. I would like to know what happened at this meeting and why I was not invited to attend. And my thought process during this whole time was, why would they exclude me? They know who I am. I was volunteer of the year at this school. My daughter has a 504 plan on file. We've met multiple times surrounding issues with her ADHD and her learning accommodations. Okay. So I just, I, I, I couldn't even process why they would have a meeting uh, with my daughter, why they would be asking her which restroom she wanted to go to. That didn't make sense to me. But of course, why they didn't invite me or tell me about it. And so I was called back with the guidance counselor and the assistant principal both together, which has never happened before. And I was told, we cannot give you any information about the meeting we had with your child. Your child is now protected under a non-discrimination law. Okay. Protected from what? Apparently from me. Okay. And protected by who? According to them, the school. Okay. So like they, they said they could not give me an information. So they, in their minds, <clears throat> I can only assume that they felt they had to withhold information from me. So my only recourse was then to go to the assistant superintendent, which we did. And then that communication between myself, my husband and the assistant superintendent went back and forth, <coughs> excuse me, for about seven weeks before we were finally given a meeting with the principal of the middle school. And that's where we were shown the six page transgender support plan that they had completed with our 13 year old daughter behind closed doors. And there were three adults in the room with my child. Oh. It was the assistant principal, what? the guidance counselor, and a social worker I had never met. Wait, why is the principal there? Assistant principal. Uh, yeah, why is the ASPRO pro principal? So I don't know. I mean, I've looked through this plan a million times. Um, there's nothing stating that there, there has to be three school officials, but I would imagine that that was part of their protocol. Okay, uh, I guess for safety. And what's the sex mm -hmm. or shall I say, gender of those three individuals that were in the room with your daughter? As far as I'm aware, they're all female. Okay. Huh. And six pages. Mm -hmm. A six-page transgender support plan. Is there like, um, what's the gist of this? So it's taken directly. I mean, you can, you can Google gender support plan or transgender support plan, and most of these are taken directly from an organization called Gender Spectrum. Uh -oh. And I was told that <laughs> that company has They wear now... that right on their sleeve. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this Gender I'm... Spectrum is uh, it's it's a probably a nonprofit but they they're in all they're just all over the place, I bet. They have a lot. Well, of they partner with Glisten 
they partner with, you know, GSA clubs. And so there's a lot of partnering going on between gender spectrum and then a lot of the LGBTQ activist organizations. Okay. The one, you know, when I started to do a deep dive into this, because when I was shown the gender support plan, I about came out of my chair. I was so angry that they had done this <clears throat> formal plan with my dollar, daughter where they took it upon themselves to affirm this identity, regardless of the co-occurring issues, regardless of how long she had felt this way. At the time, you know, if you look at the DSM-4 criteria for gender dysphoria, she didn't even meet criteria. <clears throat> so I was really struggling to understand why the school would take the, these radical steps with our daughter. And how well, how well do you suppose that those three individuals in the room uh, even knew your daughter? How, how deeply, how long, you know? Not well. Yeah. As to my knowledge, my daughter had never met the social worker. And to what degree are any of those three um, professionals a professional in psychological um, discernment or diagnosis? I'm, I have no idea. I've never so, had any contact with the social okay. worker. Okay. Oh, so the social worker could possibly have, you know, uh, deep knowledge of how to diagnose a, a trans person and tell them apart from just a girl with uh, teenage, the, 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 the disease of teenagehood. Right. Well, from my clinical perspective, I don't even know how you would differentiate that. I mean, even someone that has gender dysphoria, I think that's a person struggling with a mental health issue. I don't believe that there's any such thing as a, a true trans or someone that's born with a gender brain or born in the wrong body. <clears throat> and so to me, I don't think there's a difference between those two. I think there's different pathways of getting there. So it, it took you seven weeks to even get the information and there's a six page document that uh, has precedence from these NGO organizations. Glisten is just a weird word. I mean, that sounds like a body part that's dripping something, but whatever we can just go on uh, with that. Um, organizations just have weird branding issues, uh, generally speaking, but um, what was your, I guess, could you walk us through the reaction of, you said you fell out of your chair because there's a six page document. What are they doing to your daughter? How are they corroborating with her? How well do they know her? And to what extent are they actually helping her? I don't believe this was ever about helping her. I believe this was following a protocol that this is what you do when a child okay. comes to you and says, I'm trans. Because right on the front part of, you know, when you Google these gender support plans, it says right on there, here's what you do. You say who's there. And the, the way that they determine whether or not a parent will be included in these meetings is they ask the child. They put the entire authority on the child. Is your parent aware and are they supportive? Mm -hmm. That's it. So it's following the child's lead then. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, 100%. And, and how do they determine if the child is uh, accurately depicting their relationship to their parent? It doesn't matter. Okay. 
So there's no like um, cross examination or asking questions like from a leeward angle. Because if you say, "How no. did, do you get along with your parent?" Oh no, I don't. Like okay, well, how about how there's often do you no, hang out? Yeah. Nope. There's no follow up questions. It's, do you want your parent here? No. Okay. And then they schedule the meeting. And you know this wasn't just about name and pronouns. They asked which locker room she wanted to use, which shower she wanted to use which sex she preferred to room with on overnight field trips. Okay. And then they asked the child, would you like privacy from your parents? Meaning, do you want us to use your birth name and pronouns when speaking to your parents? Yeah. Or do you want us to use the name on the support plan? And that's to effectively deceive parents that this has ever taken place. Okay. So what happens when you put a young girl into a boy's bedroom, locker room, and shower? Well, number one, you're lying to the child and to the children <clears throat> around that child. I think that that's what's so striking about this whole situation is fundamentally no one can change their sex. And I don't mean that to be unkind. You know, but we've gone from a reality-based situation where people were struggling. We attempted to treat that struggle in a mental health setting, but we always maintain a sense of reality with the patient. And now we're in this place of <clears throat> reality is determined by feelings. And if you feel like a boy, then you are a boy. And the safety of all of the children involved is not the priority. And that's, you know, really what was most upsetting to me is they asked her questions that would have absolutely impacted her safety. And then, you know, it's all done to, under the, the guise of safety and anti-bullying and mm -hmm. non-discrimination. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the, you know, we continue to ask for justification of like, what gave you the authority to meet with our minor child without inviting us or our consent of this meeting? <clears throat> and we were finally shown the Leon County LGBTQ guide. And in this guide were directives to under no circumstances out any child to their parents when it came to sexual orientation or gender identity. And it went on to say that outing a child can be dangerous, can lead to abuse, and can literally make them homeless. Mm -hmm. So they were painting all parents, regardless of <clears throat> the reality, with no due process as a danger to their child. And we know that this is happening, and in California, the state is trying to do this explicitly. Um, but it it is these people are robbing you, robbing your child from. They're driving a wedge between you and your child. Um, your child might be indoctrinated by the internet or by their friend group, or by indoctrinated, I mean. Um, yeah, just immersed in this ideology uh, from other means, but then that ideology is 
is very carefully protected from, I guess, any sort of skeptical or cynical or even clinical examination. It's just shut off and then the child is free to, I guess, um, try to make it work for them. Um, so what were your steps in reaction to this? Uh, if you have the uh, school and maybe even possibly the legal system on the side of your daughter, uh, potentially, did you, did you consider that, that, you know, CPS might come by at any moment or anything like that? What was your level of worry with regard to proceeding with this issue? Not at the time. I became more worried after I finally <clears throat> started talking to other parents who had children fall prey to this. Many of them had horrific stories. They were estranged from their children, not by their choice. Um, so initially we were really just trying to figure out is what the school did legal? We, I mean, we didn't even know. Yeah. And then at the same time, we were struggling with, do we pull her out of school? We actually attempted to try to put her in two different private schools and they, we were turned down by both of them. So then we were left with the question, which was a very emotional process anyway, because she didn't want to leave the middle school, of course. And it, COVID was just, it added a, a, a complete layer of chaos. <clears throat> so we were left with the decision, do we leave her here or do we pull her in homeschool her? And hindsight, we should have pulled her and homeschooled her. But at the time, we were talking to our counselor, weighing the pros and cons, and after the school affirmed her, it really put such a wedge between us and our daughter that we started to become even more concerned about her mental health if we pulled her from the school and then she was left homeschooling with me because I became enemy number one. Okay. And oftentimes it is the moms that experience the brunt of the anger and you know the vitriol from the trans-identified child. So it was a really it was a really tough time. It was really a dark time for us. I was scared. I was watching my child self-destruct, and at the same time, I was watching teachers cheer it on. She was getting a lot of positive attention from the teachers for this identity, and. I was just really, really confused by all of it. It felt like we were in the twilight zone. It was a very isolating time until you kind of find other parents that have struggled with this. And then a lot of times that's when the fear sets in because you hear the horror stories. Mm -hmm. um, shortly after we met with the principal of the middle school and was shown the plan, because that was fall of 2020, that is when I found Abigail Schreier's book that had just come out in the summer. Yeah. And that reinforced everything I intuitively thought was happening with my daughter. And it kind of gave it some legitimacy that I thought the school would then have to listen to. 
Hmm. So I bought extra copies. I took it to the superintendent. I took all of this research from Segum and all this, you know, other research I have found. I let them know that this is becoming a social contagion, that these girls are vulnerable, that they are cutting the breast off of 15 and 16 year old girls. And I thought that they would be horrified. I thought they would think, oh my gosh, what have we done? This is not in the best interest of children. We do need to tell parents if their child is struggling so that they can get the appropriate help that they need, especially looking at the co-occurring psychiatric issues that many of these girls had, including previous sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I could not understand why no critical thinking was being applied to this issue where they actually thought it was in the best interest of the child to not include the parents. And a lot of these guidance counselors, they knew that these were the troubled girls. This wasn't the captain of the cheerleading squad. This was a kid that was already struggling and they knew that. And so that that's the part that's most heartbreaking to me because why didn't anybody stand up for these girls? Did you get any answer? Well, I think you kind of know what the answer is since we went ahead and filed the lawsuit. Um, you know, there's things that I can't go into, but the bottom line is if the superintendent had done what he promised, we would have never needed to file the federal lawsuit. But that's just, that wasn't what happened. And in fact, you know, it the violation happened with the gender support plan in September of 2020. We tried for a year to resolve this. And so we did not make the decision to go public with our story and file the lawsuit until October of 2021. We had actually gone public with our story in hopes that that would be enough to kind of put pressure. I didn't want to file a lawsuit. That's just not the kind of people that we are. We're not litigious people. We don't feel like that's the way to work out issues. And I was also, honestly, because my daughter was still so heavy in the indoctrination and the identity, I was really worried about the kind of attention that would then place on our family. Mm -hmm. That's when I was a little bit scared. Because even with other parents, there's such an element of fear around this issue. And much of it, in my experience, was unfounded. You know, we didn't know what to expect once we went public. And I have never had anyone show up at my house. The only people that have ever actually approached me in public, and I'm talking about outside of a, like a medical hearing or, you know, I've, I've done legislature testimony. So those, that's a completely separate experience. But in public, when I'm in Publix or I'm taking my kids to games or, you know, any other kind of setting, the only people that approach me have been on my side to tell me thank you. I have never had any kind of negative interaction in a public space, even with people that I pass on the street that I know do not agree with me. Mm -hmm. So I think that some of the fear around going public and taking a stand can be unfounded. Mm -hmm. And if we had all done it from the get-go yeah. and collect collectively had taken a stand, I don't think this would have gotten nearly as far as it had. Yeah. So there, there's two issues that you have been dealing with. One is with the institutions and then just the government apparatus policy, uh, et cetera. And then there's your daughter. 
Um, the working with with or against or reforming the institutions is an ongoing process. But how did you, in the midst of that, how did you help your daughter, um, or how did your daughter uh, move forward? Well, that's the part that I now do full time to help other families. Because what my husband and realized is our daughter was confused and she needed us to be her parents and parent her through this confusion, just like we would any other issue. And so a lot of, in fact, almost all of what we did was directly from Sasha Ayad's Inspired Teen Therapy. She has almost like a coaching model for parents where there's videos that give you information and real life scenarios and things that you can say. Because one of the first things that I realized is I had to stop reacting to everything she said. Once I realized she was confused, I really just reframed the issue. So instead of operating from a place of fear, I reframed it. So for instance, if she's asking for a binder or hormones, I treat it the same way she would ask for a tattoo or a nose ring because yeah. those things would be easy for me to say, no, you're too young. And my number one job is to protect you as your parent. And so once you're mature enough to make those kind of decisions for yourself, then that's what you'll be able to do. And so we were very clear with while you're exploring who you're going to become, if it's going to be harmful to you psychologically or physically, the answer has to be no. But if it's not unsafe, then the answer is yes. And so for what us, that looked mm -hmm. like, wear what you want, wear your hair how you want, but we will not buy you or do anything for you that can cause harm. And that does include binders. And that does include us using a name other than your given name. So we pretty much avoided names altogether that tended to keep the peace more. Mm -hmm. And her, for her, you know, for these kids, it's not a straight line out of it. And sometimes it felt like we were taking two steps forward and five steps back. And I think this is true for a lot of these girls, but during times of high stress, like around exams, or even a, her hormone cycle, her menstrual cycle, the trans identification would like be more intense. She mm -hmm. was more argumentative. She was more angry about us not using her preferred name and pronouns and kind of it became more of a power struggle during those times. And then other times it didn't seem to be much of a factor. So we just really remained consistent we worked very hard to combat the wedge that the school had placed. We reminded her every day that we loved her unconditionally and that would never change to combat what she was hearing from her friends. And then we even, because she does see things in such black and white terms, we showed her those ways. You know, we show you we love you unconditionally because we take you to school every day. <clears throat> we make sure you go to the pediatrician when you're not feeling well. I'm the one that comes up and takes your temperature and gives you medicine and loves on you when you're sick. 
Like those are the ways that we show you love. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that we really needed to do, <clears throat> we knew she had to come to her own decision about this. We were not going to be able to talk her out of this. Our daughter's very strong-willed. She's very stubborn. And so for me, I knew it was important to kind of separate this choice from me so that if there was any part of her that was doing it as a rebellion, it was, it's, it's very complex. So that was, that was one small aspect for our daughter. There was, there's so much more that went into why she fell prey to this ideology, but I took that off the table. And the way that I did that was I told her that I'm a grown woman. Choices that you make about your body one day only affect you. I've had my children, you know, I'm getting into an age now where I've already made the choices that I'm going to make, but you're still at the very beginning of your life. And some of these choices that you're talking about have very serious consequences. And so we got her to agree to not make any decisions about hormones or surgeries until her brain was fully developed and she was financially independent. So we weren't paying the bills anymore and her brain was fully developed. And that made sense to her because, she, you know, she knows about brain development. She knows that her brain is a little bit behind her peers. And so that was a huge step for us to be able to do because it gave us time. Like we could kind of breathe at that point. Hmm. We could say, okay, because we knew that that's what most of these kids need is the gift of time. They need to go through their natural puberty. They need the time to mature and they need to have the time to make the life experiences, which is what she's doing now. You know, I mean, that's what's, that's what's the saddest part about all of this is a lot of these kids lose their entire adolescence to this when they should be going on dates, having their first kiss. You know, a lot of these kids are identifying as alternate sexual orientations and gender identities, and they've never even held someone's hand before, boy or girl. Like they, they have zero experience except for maybe online porn, which is the opposite of what we want them to have. But we just really knew that we were gonna have to really get creative with our parenting and start planting seeds when we could, but we could not do that until we repaired our relationship with our daughter. That was step number one. Step number two was getting her off the internet. We took her phone for over two years, like hmm. turned it off, out of sight. Sorry, we don't know when you'll get it back. We made a mistake giving it to you too early because I didn't want her to think it was her fault, yeah. like she had done something wrong because she hadn't. And so we just, I tell parents, it's never too late to walk any decision back, any decision, whether it's giving a phone, whether you were socially transitioning your child, whether you gave your daughter a binder and now you're freaking out and you realize that wasn't the smartest thing that you didn't know that those things could hurt the child. Yeah. You can walk any decision back. Yeah. 
So when did you decide that you would pitch in, you would give your attention to other people on this issue? What was the compulsion there? So when, when we went public with our story, that was the summer of 2021. It was an Epic Times <laughs> piece. Yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> we, would have, we would have told our story to any media outlet, but it became very clear early on that it was only the right-leaning media outlets that were even willing to cover this side of this issue. And so we were grateful for the opportunity. This was a very nice journalist who we were very nervous. And, you know, at the same time of going public with our story, I was desperate to protect my child and to protect her identity. I don't tell a lot about her story. I tell, I talk about what I did as a parent because that's her story to tell if yeah. she ever wants to tell it. Yeah. And I, I have been very clear with her. You can walk away from this and never look back. I mean, she's a normal 16 year old girl now on the 17th. That's hard enough to then also have this as part of your experience. Yeah, yeah. That's really tough. And so once we went public, I didn't go by an alias. A lot of moms that told their stories didn't use their real name. I was easy to find. I've been doxxed a couple of times because when you use your real name, it's super easy to find out where people live. Like it's not hard. But people would contact me through Facebook. And some of them contacted me through the journalist. And I was already in support groups that I had found, like the parents of ROGD support groups. And there's a couple of Facebook groups that I was in that I was very grateful for. And so I just started connecting those parents to the same resources I wish I had found early on. <laughs> and so I was already doing that you know, and it started to become almost a full-time thing I was doing in my free time because I just, I knew how desperate and alone I felt with this issue. And I never, ever wanted a parent to feel that way again. And I wanted them to have the tools that they need to walk their child through this. And, you know, at the end of the day, and this, I tell parents this all the time, I can't promise you your child's going to come out of this. I wasn't even sure if my child was going to come out of this. I had no idea what was going to happen, but what I did know is that at the end of the day, I would have done everything I could to protect her from making what I see as harmful choices. And if she, at that point, made the decision to do it, at least I could rest knowing I tried to prevent it. Mm -hmm. I did everything I could to try. And so that's, that's what I help parents doing. <laughs> But, you know, there were so many things that we did because I think a lot of these kids, they need an off-ramp. They need an off-ramp for the identity. And I also knew my daughter needed to save face. I wanted her to understand that I was never going to say, I told you so. All I cared about is that she got to a place of self-love. And that's what I told her all the time. Hmm. And so... For a lot of these kids, you know, there's always like, well, how do you know if they're desisting? Is this a sign? And a lot of these kids, there's never like an official announcement. Like when they first come out as transgender, you know, they want a parade. It's an official announcement. They want glitter and new wardrobe and new name and new this and all these things. But when they start to desist, 
like I said before, there's no straight line out of it, but it, it took a really long time for my daughter to even talk about the experience because not only does she have confusion and shame over falling for this lie, she's also really angry about what the school did. Hmm. So it's a lot for her to process. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm angry for her, for what the school did. And how is that yeah. proceeding? I mean, is there, is there justice, um, from your point of view, is there on an institutional level, is there a writing this ship or how is it, how is that proceeding? So our case, cause they'll probably do the same thing. These teenagers do. They'll just like stop talking about it for a while. It's like, okay, well, that didn't happen. You know? Well, that's what they're trying to do. But unfortunately, I'm still hearing that children, even in my school district, because my kid, none of my kids are in the school district anymore. We pulled all of this. I, my trust is decimated. I, cu I could not even face, you know, going to the school anymore. Hmm. But I'm still hearing, number one, that kids are still being affirmed unofficially without the gender support men, because now we have laws in our state that a lot of states don't have. You know, we have the Parent Bill of Rights, we have the Parental Rights in Education. Mm -hmm. And then I've also heard school counselors say, well, just pretend the student didn't tell you. What, like, what just pretend. So if, the, if a student comes to you and says, I, I'm struggling over my gender identity. I think I might be non-binary, but I'm not sure. Like, just pretend that didn't happen. If it didn't happen, there's no reason to notify the parents. Oh, okay. And the other way that they're skirting around the law is they are now claiming if the child is not in distress and you don't do a gender support plan, then no change in service has actually happened. So parents don't need to be notified. Okay. But how are you determining if the child is in distress? And why are you still trying to keep parents in the dark about this? Yeah. So it's, you know, we still have, there's two things that are happening. You still have this notion that children have a right to privacy from their parents. That's what the, the activist organization organizations push. This is why they can push that narrative you know, children get to decide who and when they're out, even to their parents, this whole notion that it's dangerous, that they, they should have autonomy over that. But, you, you know, you also have all of these other false narratives being pushed that, that teachers believe, like that it's unkind not to affirm, that I'm actually putting this child at risk of suicide. And so they believe these narratives that they are being told without really understanding a, the truth about suicidal ideation, and especially the truth about suicidality when it comes to this issue. And so our, our lawsuit was dismissed. We are appealing the judge's ruling to the 11th Circuit of Appeals, but there have been some other wins in different states. There was a, a Wisconsin family that sued over this issue and they just won in court. And then there was a woman in California, the Spreckles school district where they mm -hmm. settled with her. 
which was probably the best thing that she could have gotten because there's no way she could have won something like that in California. Yeah. So I think these things are going to take time. There are still cases like mine that are pending all over the United States. But my goal is just to continue to have conversations with people to get the truth out about this because there's so much conflation with sexual orientation and and this transgender identification and they are very different and i've had people that were genuinely bullied for being gay come up to me and think it's unkind what i'm doing that i'm somehow not allowing my daughter to be her true self and and they're just so deceived when it comes to this issue it's not even near the same. And I even tried to tell this gentleman that what if you had been pushed to be identify as a girl because you liked feminine things? Like that's what's happening. This is a very regressive ideology where we're putting kids into boxes. And that's that's the other thing I encourage parents to do. Like I'm a very feminine woman, but I thought it was important that I showed my daughter there is no right way to be a woman. So I introduced her to this woman on a horse farm. I introduced her to all kinds of women. We got her what we called a gifted coach. That was kind of her off ramp. I wanted her to learn Mm -hmm. about her giftedness and her gifted brain and how gifted girls sometimes feel like outsiders and outliers. Jesse Manisto talks about this a lot, Mm -hmm. but like it was, it, it wasn't any one thing we did. It was like all these things that we did simultaneously to get her to a point where she could start critically thinking about this issue. And we just started asking questions, not from a place of judgment, but from a place of genuine curiosity and compassion, just to get her thinking. Mm -hmm. If there are lawsuits pending across America, um, uh, what does that tell us about the state of uh, American public education and, and what it's uh, what it thinks it's about? You know, if, if test scores are tanking and children's transition rates are skyrocketing, what what's going on in these schools? Well, schools are ground zero for this ideology. And they want to pretend that they're not, but they absolutely are. And, you know, it's not just the GSA clubs. And of course, I don't believe that every teacher is on board with this ideology. Now, do we have activist teachers in schools that may be pushing this? A hundred percent. But I think the problem is, is just like in the medical and psychological communities where debate was silenced, a lot of these teachers that have come to me and thanked me for taking a stand did not feel like they could speak out because they felt like their job was on the line if they did. Mm-hmm. And in these guides, you know, we found out it wasn't just Leon County that had this LGBTQ guide. Equality Florida, an activist organization, had infiltrated 63 out of 67 school districts. And so there were multiple counties that had very similar guides that were misrepresenting FERPA. They were misrepresenting the Bostick case and, and applying it to children and gender identity and things that legally it should not have been applied to. So they were making these teachers believe that they were following the law, that they could not question a student's gender identity. And so thankfully, we're now seeing pushback in states where they're trying to beef 
parental rights. And they're trying to, you know, stop the medical interventions on these vulnerable children that, you know, lead to sterilization and destruction of future sexual functioning. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's not healthcare. And, you know, the United States is full steam ahead on this affirmation medical model when other countries that are more socially liberal, where this hasn't been as politicized, are completely taken a different route, which is much more ethical and based on scientific evidence. So far as we have scientific evidence, because this is still, well, it's not even an experiment because there's no control group, but this is still a frontiersman medicine. Well, right. And I guess when I say scientific evidence, I mean a systematic review for as best as we can. Yes. You know, the U.S., uh, except with the exception of Florida, no medical association or state has done a systematic review of the evidence like the UK and Finland and Sweden mm-hmm. and other countries have done. Yay, federalism. But that, that doesn't, that leaves out the, uh, these uh, medical associations too. That's a, that's another, that's a whole other can of worms or, or uh, head of the beast um, to wrangle. Yes. And there's, you know, you just hit the nail on the head. Gender ideology is a beast. And there are many arms to this beast. And there's certain parts of it that I think people feel more comfortable talking about, like the sports issue. Yeah. I feel like that opened the door for people to start to have this conversation because it was so blatant how unfair it was, you know, when the Leah Thomas situation happened. Like that was Mm -hmm. so clearly unfair that people felt I think it was safer to then say, well, wait a second, hold on. That's a man saying he's a woman yeah. beating women in the pool. Like that's, that's just not fair. I'm not a bigot. I'm not transphobic. That's just not fair. Like that's not, you know, the whole title nine hmm. was trying to prevent this from happening. Yeah. So I think that, you know, there's that, there's the men and women's spaces, there's the parental rights angle, there's the ideology and the social media aspect, but, you know, going back to the schools, they are ground zero, whether they, they admit it or not. A lot, most schools you walk into, you will find propaganda in the form of safe space stickers or pride flags. You've got the GSA clubs. And then you have, I don't know why the science and math teachers seem to be so infiltrated with this ideology, but you even have them teaching non reality concepts like well we now know sex is a spectrum so kids are being taught this in their high school biology classes and as you saw in colin wright's and heather hyan's amazing presentations that's just not true Hmm. yeah uh i don't know if they're midwits or envious of being uh math teachers you know uh like walter white they're going from math to meth, but, but <laughs> I don't know, but they're supposed to like understand science and, and be very black and white in that. So yeah. it's, it seems yeah. odd to me that it's a lot of the science teachers sporting yeah. the well, it's, pride. It's cred. Yeah, it's cred. You get cred. And plus it's just a social contagion that adults as well have uh, experienced uh, as well. True. Yeah, it's definitely, it's become a sign of 
virtue signaling of sorts, yeah. like class look how cool I am. I'm very inclusive. And, yeah. and but the and schools, she, they need to focus on the reading and the math scores. Like that should be step one. If they yeah. really want to save public education, they're going to have to come to terms with what is actually happening and why parents are pulling their kids. You know, they mm-hmm. want to push these false book banning narratives and all this other nonsense. Yeah. But parents want to see them get back to basics and leave the rest to them. Yeah. Whichever side you're on. This is actually a unifying issue. I mean, if anything came out of the GenSpec conference, it's, it's how diverse the people are that are fighting this. This may be the only thing they agree on, but this, this, uh, this idea of pushing back against gender ideology and ensuring that biological reality wins prevails prevails is a unifying issue and the vast majority the silent majority believe that yeah yeah so how can people get on board with your gravy train of uh, uh parental rights what what do you what do you call yourself you're, you're a you're a parental coach what do you think you're you, you're doing now i'm still just a mom you're just a mom, a mom, mom at large. Fought to save her daughter and now wants yeah. to help other parents <clears throat> yeah. walk their children through it and just offer support. A lot of what these parents need is just to know they're not alone. Yeah. It is. I mean, I, I can't even think the first six months I, I spent most of it just crying and terrified of, of what was going to happen to my daughter and, and just seeing her self-destruct and then other people cheer her along that path it was just it was a nightmare so i want to help other people do that i i volunteer my time with do no harm and so people can reach out to me through that organization and i helped to create our gender ideology resources page for parents which has books and documentaries you know all the resources that i found helpful um I think the only one that isn't on there that I tell parents about is Sasha Ayad's Inspired Teen Therapy. But, you know, Stella and Sasha's Gender A Waterland podcast is on there. So just, you know, all of those resources, the books, there's so much more now available, yeah. Yeah. luckily, yeah. than what was available in 2020. And I am incredibly grateful to Lisa Lippman and Abigail Schreier for having the courage to just tell the truth and report what they were seeing, regardless of the consequences and social backlash they experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Well, excellent. Speaking of Stella, I'm going to jump on a uh, show with her now. Um, and Good. Her, Nina Pela. We're going to talk about the GenSpec conference. It was excellent to meet you at the conference and excellent also to, to hear your story and to talk with you today. Thank you so much, January, for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity just to, tell other parents our, our story and give them hope that yeah. they can also walk their kids through this confusion. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's my honor. All right. Thank you. Tell Leslie hello. I will. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye.